In fact, that's where I want to begin this morning and pick us back up is where we've left off the last couple weeks. And uh, If you're not familiar with my methods, there should be an insert inside of your bulletin. It has a handout. You can follow along if you like. And this first thing will get us started here. The gospel, very clearly, if someone was to say to you, what is the gospel? Here, the gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. It's about who Jesus is, who he was, and who he always will be. It's about what his work was, what his work is, and what his work will be. When we declare the gospel, that's the message that we're to declare. We're just to tell the story of Jesus. We're to tell who Jesus is and what he's doing now, and why that means that we need to respond. Because you see, in telling Jesus' story, it, it just by very nature calls us to respond. Once the gospel's proclaimed, just by very nature of a proclamation or a, a declaration of the gospel, we're faced with a question, and it's the same question that the Philippian jailer asked of Paul and Silas. Do you remember the story in Acts chapter 16 where, where Paul and Silas, they were in jail in Philippi, and in the middle of the night, an angel appeared and shook the, the, the whole jail, just like an earthquake. Their shackles fell off, and the guard assumed that they escaped because the, the jail door was opened and he was about to fall on his own sword. And you might say, well, that's awfully silly. Why would he do that? That's because in Roman times, if a prisoner escaped while you were on the watch, what was going to happen is you were going to be executed. That's just the way it was. And so he thought, well, I might as well kill myself now because they've already escaped. Paul and Silas cry out, no, 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 don't harm yourself. And they tell him the gospel. And just by telling him the gospel, the question that he asks is, what must I do to be saved? That's the logical question then that you and I are confronted with, that everybody needs to be confronted with. What must I do to be saved? I'm not talking about this false conversion that we've already seen, that we've already condemned in the last couple weeks. I'm not talking about false piety or a form of religiosity. I'm not talking about people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. I'm not talking about people who are churched. I'm not talking about people who come in and they're somehow connected with a church or they identify with a church or, or they self-identify themselves as a Christian. If you're to ask them if, if they're religious, I'm talking about genuine conversion, like a supernatural change from the inside that begins on the inside and it just comes on the outside and everything that happens in your life emanates out of that. That's the kind of saved that I'm talking about. In fact, the very, the very name or title saved means saved from what? Saved from destruction, have you ever thought, we use some churchy words at times that perhaps those people who are outside of the church maybe just don't always get what we're talking about, and we ask them, are you saved? And they're like, saved from what? Saved from taxes? Saved from death? Saved from what? 
We're not talking about just being saved from death. We're talking about being saved from eternal condemnation. That's what being saved really means. So we have to ask the question, what must I do to be saved, genuinely saved? In fact, have you ever heard somebody say, well, that person's a pretty religious person. Boy, I've heard that so many times. And every time I hear that, it's like, you know, the fingernails going across the chalkboard. It drives me nuts because religiosity will lead to death. But a relationship with Jesus Christ will lead to life. I don't want people to be religious. I don't want them to look religious on the outside. I want them to be changed from the inside. I don't care if somebody looks religious because there's awful a lot of religious people who look religious on the outside, but on the inside, they're, they're dying. They're the whitewashed tombs. What I'm talking about is something that's greater than the mere will of man. I'm talking about something that is born of God. Jesus talked about it this way to a religious leader. His name was Nicodemus. He said to him, you must be, do you remember what Jesus' words were to him in the middle of the night when Nicodemus, this, this religious leader, came to him and was talking to him? I know that you've you got to be from God because the things that you're doing, the things that you're saying, they're, they're just so true. Jesus says to him, you must be born again. That's where Nicodemus' confusion comes in and says, how in the world can I enter again into my mother's womb? That would be awfully awkward and she couldn't fit me. He says, no, 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 I'm talking about something that is spiritual and supernatural. That's where I want to pick up John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. If you don't have your Bible with you, I have it up here on the screen for you, and it's in the English Standard Version. This is the story of of Nicodemus, and, and from this, out of this story, is this John 3.16 that you and I have come to know for so many years. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, which literally means teacher, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly. Jesus is emphasizing this. He's saying, truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, to put that in our terms, you can't be saved. You can't go to heaven unless you enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly. Again, he's emphasizing this. I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit. In other words, this is Jesus' way of saying, unless you're born supernaturally, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is or supernaturally, is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? 
So Jesus answered him, verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, he's emphasizing the truth again. I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man, in other words, Jesus. And as Moses, list, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he's prophesying about the cross. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's a word in there that I, I think is worth paying attention to. I know it's worth paying attention. It's the word believe. John 3.16, right? Whoever believes in God. In, in, in our culture today, the word believe is oftentimes relegated, unfortunately, to an intellectual assent, an intellectual acknowledgement. Sure, I believe, I acknowledge that when I put my key into the ignition and I turn it, and then it's going to turn the car over as long as I have a good battery. Right? I believe, I trust. And perhaps that is what we need to begin to understand the word believe, is that we trust wholly in God. Earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, John clarifies the belief in Jesus and what that really means. And let me kind of take that a little bit further. This belief in Jesus is a true supernatural trust in Jesus' person. The work is born, person and his work. And it's born not of blood or of the will of man, rather it is born of God. We use the word in the church, conversion. Someone was converted from, from death unto life. They were converted from going to hell to now going to heaven. But specifically, the word conversion more talks about the inside of us. What must I do to be saved? You need to be converted. And that happens by the will and the power of God. That's the only way that conversion takes place. You cannot will yourself enough to be converted. You see, sin has removed us so far from God that we have an inability to choose God because inadvertently we always choose sin. That is why, that is why unbelievers are called by Jesus children of the devil. Right? You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. Now, that's heavy, weighty stuff, isn't it? 
That's why there are only two destinations. There's only two outcomes at the end of time. Either you're going to be forever in the presence of God or, or you're always going to suffer judgment in hell. There is no purgatory. There is no middle ground. There is no place of purging. Those are all inventions of man. God is the acting agent in drawing us to saving faith by His grace. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is all about. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's the grace of God that gives us the faith so that we might believe. God is the acting agent to call us to faith. Have you ever been around somebody that says, oh, that person prayed the prayer and so now they believe? The prayer is not what caused them to believe. The prayer is not what made them a child of God. It was a supernatural change of God that made them the child of God. The prayer is just evidence that they already believe. The the enabling grace that even makes them have the ability to pray that prayer, shows that God is already at work in their life. God reveals to a person personally the truth of the testimony of Jesus. And when that supernatural awakening occurs, there is a two-fold response. Okay, now we're talking about genuine salvation here. There's a two-fold gospel response And you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have true, genuine salvation with only one of these responses. In fact, these responses come together as a package. Here they are. First one is belief. Or, to use another word, trust. There's a supernatural awakening that takes place that is the precious gift of God that enables us to believe and to trust that God is who he says he is. That we are to believe the gospel. Remember, what is the gospel? The gospel is the person and the work of Jesus. So we believe on the gospel. And according to Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross accomplished all things necessary for the gospel once for all. That's, by the way, why there is no uh, reason for any future necessary sacrifices. The sacrificial system was done away with after Jesus. That's why, do you remember at at the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross? Do you remember what happened in the temple? The temple curtain, what happened? It was torn from top to bottom. Why? Because... The the inside, which is called the Holy of Holies, which was to represent the very presence of God, was only accessible once a year by the high priest. Now it's torn so that we have direct access to God. We don't need a priest anymore. We don't need We don't need sacrifices anymore because Jesus was our sacrifice once and for all, and Jesus is our high priest. This belief... You can't manufacture this kind of belief. If someone genuinely believes, genuinely trusts in the gospel, that is a precious gift of God. And only God himself can do that kind of work. That's not anything that you and I can muster out of our own ability. That's, by the way, what makes salvation so amazing. 
You can't earn your salvation. If you were able to choose your salvation, you would be earning it. God has given us this, this gift of salvation, this ability to see who he is, supernaturally drawing back the blinders. Belief in the gift of God through his grace, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and many others, is a gift of God. And then what happens? What happens just naturally, out of, out of seeing, that's who God is. What happens is a second part. Repentance... Or in other words, obedience. Repentance is a word that's used in the scriptures to, to help us understand it means to turn away. You don't, I've heard some people talk about repentance as a 360. If, if you do a 360, you go in the same direction that you are already headed, right? If you do a 180, you're going in the opposite direction. That's what repentance is about. We, we forsake our sins... And then we obey what God wants us to do. And the only way that you can do that with a pure heart is by the supernatural gift of God. You see, here's how some people try to manufacture that second part, is they try out of their own will to accomplish all the things of God. You can't do it. That's why we needed Jesus in the first place. No man can obey the law of God. Let me give you an example. Have you, um, have you ever taken the name of God in vain, said something about God out of frustration? Have you ever told somebody, um, even the smallest little white lie, sinner, we haven't, we've only hit two of the Ten Commandments. Guys, have you ever looked at a gal in a way that you know that you ought not to? Jesus says that's adultery. There's another commandment. Oh, my goodness. You see, none of us can be good enough. That's the point of why we needed Jesus. And there's people who try to synthesize their ability to obey God out of their own self-will. Those are the religious people. Those are the ones that Jesus condemned. But supernaturally, inside what was happening is their hearts are far from God. And so there's a disconnect. And why do we really do this? And what ends up happening is those people will ultimately fall away. Because they're going to slip up because they can't keep it up out of their own ability. Repentance means that we turn away from our sins. And in turning away from our sins, we turn to God, we embrace His grace, and through His grace and through His power, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can obey the moral law of God because he has changed me. Now, no longer do I have a sin nature, but I am a new creation, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old is gone, the new has come. That's what gives me the supernatural ability to obey God. 
Some people think, oh, I'm condemned to, to always follow my fleshly ways. No, you're not. That's a misunderstanding of what God has done if you're truly, genuinely saved. You're not any longer a slave to sin, but now, according to what the Apostle Paul writes, you're a slave to righteousness. By the way, all of this stuff, let me kind of make some sense here. Where do we learn God's laws and His plans for you? Well, we learn it from discipleship within the church. That's why coming to church is so important, not just so people can see you coming to church, but so you, that you can genuinely hunger and thirst after righteousness, as Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, right? So that you can genuinely know what it is that God wants for your life. We learn that within the church. We learn that, that's why the church needs to proclaim and to profess the will and the plan of God. We also learn it clearly within the scriptures. That's why if we genuinely thirst and hunger after righteousness, hunger after God's word, then we ourselves have been given a precious gift that people all around the world are willing to die for, for just fragments. And we have several of them on our shelves, and many of them are collecting dust, and we think that if we read a verse or two, well, I've done my duty for today. Well, that's just the horrible, wrong, hard attitude to have. If you genuinely want to know this great gift of salvation, this scripture has it in there for you. Yes, and in order to be an effective disciple, you must participate in the local church because it's here that you'll receive instructions. It's here that you'll be held accountable for acting like a true believer. That's why we even have membership covenants together, right? When we take membership vows, we even, we even have this structured in such a way that says, you know what, I'm giving the authority to the church to hold me accountable so that my actions and my lifestyle looks like a disciple of Jesus. Oftentimes, uh, <laughs> it's unfortunate, but those membership covenants are dropped, uh, or at least ineffective, oftentimes because the church is afraid to offend. We're afraid to hold somebody truly, genuinely accountable to the wills and the ways of God. In reality, that's what we need to do. That's what we're called to do. By the way, this then throws out the door once and for all this idea that you can sit in front of the TV and that you can be fed just as much in front of the TV as you can come into church. It's just a bunch of baloney. Tell me how that TV is going to hold you accountable for being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. If you were to go into the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you're going to find at least 13 clear records of conversions. In other words, you're going to find 13 clear accounts of somebody responding positively to the gospel. And each of these responses, according to the scriptures, are genuine salvation responses. Supernatural change takes place. In each of the 13 plus accounts, do you know what takes place? Belief and repentance, belief and repentance, belief and repentance, belief and repentance, belief and repentance. Because that's what happens in a genuine conversion. Believe upon the gospel. You trust the gospel wholly. And, a, and a, a, just a natural, logical response of that trust then is you obey God and you respond to God. You repent of your sins. When someone has genuine saving grace, they not only trust the work of Jesus, but they repent of their sins and they begin to obey the teachings of God. 
That's what genuine saving grace does. Now you might say, listen, can, can I be clear? Can we be clear as friends today? Because I don't want to be so loving and so, so um, kind that I'm loving someone right into hell. You know what I'm saying? Or being so kind that I don't tell somebody the truth. I love you enough that I want to tell you the truth. If you don't have a desire to obey God, you're not saved. Can you hear that? Can I say it again? If you don't have a desire to obey God, you're not saved. Because that's what happens. There's a supernatural change inside of us that we want to please our daddy. We want to honor our Father. And, and when we do fall, and you're going to fall, we all are going to fall, and when we stumble, that we have a genuine sense of, of guilt and shame and remorse, and we repent, and we, we according to 1 John 1, 9, that we, we confess to God, I am so sorry for that sin. And God is faithful and just and forgives us once again. And he picks us up and dusts us off and moves us along our way. But if you're, if you're here today and you say, you know, the things that you're talking about are foreign to me. The things that you're talking about, I, I, don't, I have a great disconnect. I really don't, I don't have much of a care to really obey God or find out who he's about. Can I be clear? You're not saved. Because what happens is God changes us supernaturally so that those desires are rooted inside of us. And what happens is we want to grow in Christ. Good works that Jesus begins in a believer according to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He promises that the work that he begins in us He's going to bring it to completion. You know what that means? There's nothing that can happen on this earth if you're genuinely saved that can rip you out of the hand of God. The good work that he began in you, don't worry, he is going to bring it to completion. Now, how do you share the gospel message? Actually, let me back up one more thing. What must I do then to be saved? From a human perspective, you need to trust in the personal work of Jesus Christ. That's the beginning point. And then you need to seek God and obey Him. If you're asking like the Philippian jailer then in response to the things that we've learned in the last two weeks and then also again this morning, what must I do then in order to be saved? Cry out to God. And if you're in a place where you say, I, don't, I just genuinely don't trust him, I just genuinely don't believe him, but I want to believe him. Well, then you're like the centurion who says, Lord, I believe, but help my, do you remember what it says? My unbelief. Oh, now that's evidence of desiring God. So how then do we share this? In light of these things, how do we share the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ with others. That's where we're going to have to pick up this week. I really wanted to share that with you this week, but I knew my time would be short. So where does that leave us? I want you to know this. Salvation is a supernatural gift of God. 
that you cannot earn. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is the free, gracious gift of God. You can't earn salvation. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things. You can't give enough money. You can't help enough people across the street. Believe in your heart so that you might be saved. If you do not place your trust in Jesus Christ and repent of your sins, you are not saved. You are not saved. If you do not fully trust in Jesus Christ, if you do not fully desire the works of God in your life, you are not saved. They're saying, Brad, you're giving some pretty harsh words this morning. I'm, I'm just sharing these words because I, I, I want to be so, as clear as I can. Because the scriptures are awfully clear. And, and, and what I'm so afraid is oftentimes churches, out of a, a, a fear of offending, out of a, a fear of, of saying something that someone want, won't like them, I want people to like me. But more importantly, I want people to go to heaven. And I don't want to be the one that's held accountable for not clearly proclaiming the word of God. I I also want to say something in context of this. Salvation is not an event. It's an experience. You see, here's what happens when we're saved. It's not something that we just point to a date. It's not something that we just say, well, I was saved then. You're continually being saved. That that atoning blood of Jesus Christ is sprinkled over you once and for all in your life is always going to be living as a reflection of what God did supernaturally in your life. You're continually going to be redeemed and refined and challenged. Salvation is not an event. That's living in the past. You can't say that, well, I was saved, now I can live like like I want to. If that's the attitude, you weren't genuinely saved in the first place. Because genuine salvation changes our attitude, changes our mind, changes our heart, changes the essence of who we are. And then our life is an experience and reflection of that change. Salvation is not an event. It's an experience. Now, next week, I want to leave you with one more message next week. And and the the message I want to leave you with this is, based on these things, I hope that you're sensing an urgency to share the gospel. I hope that you have a desire that's building to share the gospel. Then how do you share the gospel? I want to show you that next week, based upon the scriptures and based upon what's happening in our culture today. I want to show you next week, how can you clearly talk to somebody about the person and the work of Jesus Christ and give them an opportunity then to respond? That's where I want to leave you and finish this series next week. But I'm not going to leave you there. We've got to start another series because here's what I'm afraid. I'm afraid that we're going to, I'm afraid that we're going to talk about this deep salvation, significant and supernatural, and people are going to say, 
you've just whetted my appetite. Now, now help me understand what this experience is. And I want to talk then directly about the richness of this glorious salvation and how oftentimes Christians are not choosing to live in the glory of this salvation. And I want to talk about how we can do that and change our minds and change our ways so that we'll glorify God, so that we'll live with God and God will be honored. Let's pray together. Let me invite the worship team to come up. And 